This is a reading from Genesis. God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and sent out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place far away. Then Abraham said, said to his young man, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked together. Isaac said to his father, Father? And Abraham said, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The wood and the fire are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. The angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by, caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The word of the Lord. A reading from Romans. Do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Should we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you have once been slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted and that you, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. 
I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness for sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So what advantage did you then get from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage you get is sanctification. The end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Jesus said, whoever welcomes you welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of those little ones in the name of a disciple, and truly I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. The Gospel of the Lord. That ending to the Romans passage, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is on the Roman road to salvation that I was taught in the high school by um, Dr. James Kennedy. Ever, anybody ever heard of this guy? He wrote a program called Evangelism Explosion. And it was a way that you could go and encounter people and sort of confront them with the gospel so that they could make decisions for God right there on the spot. And the best place to do this in high school was in a laundromat because you had a captive audience. <laughs> so, so we'd go up to folks and we'd say, um, do you know if you died today, if you'd go to heaven? That was question one. And, and, and nice people, you know, would say, yeah, I hope so, think so. And then number two, well, let's just pretend you did die today, like on the way home from the laundromat. <laughs> delightful, wasn't it? Um, and God said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say back? And then this was designed for us to go ahead and unleash the Roman road to salvation that includes phrases like, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God's eternal life, so that we could tell people, you know, how it is that they could go to heaven should they die on the way home from the laundromat, which was very probable, we might add, <laughs> um, so that they'd listen. I think our stories today, though, ask us not just what the wages of sin are. I think they ask us to consider anew what the labors of sin are. And I think they also ask us to consider what the labors of life are. See, the same formation that, that got me in the laundromat was the kind that taught me this story about Abraham on a flannel board. And for some reason, the story was a lot less threatening in flannel 
you know. Isaac didn't seem really that bothered to be tied up with a dagger over his throat, and the lamb seemed really just sort of okay with the sacrifice. And, and of course, what we learned, you know, and this is reading from the same passage as Paul, is that, you know, Abraham really exemplifies this tremendous obedience to God. He's asked in the story to sacrifice his son, and he's compliant. Unlike any other story with Abraham, actually, Abraham doesn't argue back at all. Think with me. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah, these are people he doesn't even know. He argues God with God like he's at a Middle Eastern bazaar. 50, no, no, 40, okay, 30, okay, 20, no, 10. If there's 10 people, I'll save the city. Argues for people he doesn't know. Last week, his wife Sarah says, get rid of Ishmael, I don't like him. Not my child, even though he's yours. Abraham doesn't like it and he says something back. This week, Abraham didn't have anything to say. He just goes and does what he feels like God's telling him to do. Maybe, maybe Abraham is proving that he loves God as much as the people around him love their gods. I mentioned to you last week that there's a place down the mountain in Jerusalem called, Ar- called um, Gehenna, and that's the place where people who worship the gods Chemosh and Molech and Milcom would take their firstborn son and burn the child alive in worship of those gods. It happened there at the absolute minimum outside of Jerusalem. Abraham knew these people were doing it. Maybe, maybe this is a test to see if Abraham loves a God who doesn't require it as much as these people who love their gods who do. Maybe. Maybe this is a test of Abraham's faith to see if he will give his most precious thing to follow God. I mean, after all, Abraham wanted a biological son with Sarah for a hundred years before he got one. It's not just that he's losing his firstborn, it's losing this miraculous child born to a woman over 80 years old. Maybe this is the kind of thinking that we sort of understand from junior high or high school or that exam, you know, like your CPA exam or the bar where you were in the middle of taking this test and you said, God, if you just help me pass this test, I'll be a nun. I'll I'll, I'll be a priest. I'll do something I hate if you'll just let me pass this test. Maybe this is what Abraham's doing. Giving his best so that he can get some reward from God. Maybe that's the test faith. Maybe God works in transactions like that. You know, God only gives and listens if we give. Even though I grew up with that perspective, I just can't imagine God's like that. Not really. It's of comfort to know that the rabbis, the Jewish interpreters, don't imagine God's like that either. When you read the Bible in Judaism, you rarely just read the Bible. In the middle of the page would be the story we just read, and then all around it would be comments by the rabbis. 
Comments by people named Rabbi Akiva and Gamaliel and Joseph, etc., etc. What's interesting about their comments is that it's almost like they're trying to disagree with each other. You know you've gone to a good study in a synagogue when you got really mad. <laughs> and then you come back next week and see if you can disagree even more. That's sort of how it goes. The rabbis point out exactly the same thing I pointed out to you. Abraham argues for Sodom and Gomorrah, didn't argue for his own son. The rabbis say, if God is testing Abraham's faith, Abraham fails. He fails because he doesn't choose life. The wages of sin are death, and that must mean that the labors of sin are death too. The gift of God is eternal life, and surely that means that the labors of God are eternal life. What would have happened if in the last 2,000 years of Christian tradition, we read the story that way? What if we heard the story and instead of saying, aha, paragon of faith, we said, he should have said no. What if he had said no? Would God have been mad? Or would God have been delighted that Abraham had chosen life? Think about the consequences of this story. The Inquisition, the Crusades. You know that famous phrase from the Crusades, kill them all, God will know his own. It comes back to this story and others like it. But what if the story had been framed in such a way that the way you pass a test of faith is by choosing not blind obedience, but by choosing life. I think Jesus asks us, asks us to dial even deeper on what the labors of life are. You know, this is just a really short passage and basically sort of says, when you act righteously to other people or even when you receive righteous people, you get the reward of righteousness. And the last couple of weeks in our Sunday School Adult Forum time between, between services, you know, we've been talking about the sacraments. These are, you know, 2,000-year-old almost um, things that churches claim as vehicles of grace. In fact, the prayer book calls them, and, 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 and people know this, it's in the back in the catechism. It says, the sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace, an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So we're thinking about those things, right? We come to the Lord's table every week to be nourished not just in our bodies but by our spirits. That's an outward sign. It's something that affects actually our stomach but of an inward grace because we expect that God's not just giving us calories from the bread and the wine that frankly don't even taste that great um, but that God is giving our spirits energy to be renewed. That's sacramental, right? The vows of marriage and keeping our vows to one another and loving with one another through thick and through thin, um, being absolutely committed, enjoying life with each other, that's gotta be sacramental. 
A few weeks ago, um, it's been on my mind to ask the question, well, well, are there things that are sacramental that we don't call sacramental? Like serving one another. If somebody is hungry, I mean starving, and we give them food, is that an outward, visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace? Does God love us like that? Do we participate in God's love when we do it? Well, I think so. <laughs> I think so. When somebody is alone, I mean, the Gospels themselves say this, and they're down and out because they're incarcerated and we go and we comfort them. Is that an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace? Is that something God does, visit people in prison? I sure hope so, don't you? When somebody's sick and in their hospital and they're afraid for their life and their treatment plan and we go and we visit them, is that an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace? I sure think so. I wonder if Jesus isn't telling us that when we serve other people and when we accept their service, that that is when we are participating in the wages and in the labor of life. And there's an even bigger stretch on it, you know. Um, if you're like me, you don't always say the creed with your full being. Sometimes you just do it because it's written. If you're like me, you don't always come to the rail with the most proper and holy mindset and expectation of grace. Sometimes it comes whether you're ready for it or not. I mean, isn't that the nice thing about sacraments? Sometimes they surprise us. In the history of the church, we decided a long time ago that all this stuff works even if the priest is a scumbag. We decided that if the priest baptizes your child, the sacrament was there because the sacrament's not about how we do it, it's about what God is doing. Of course, you'd rather not have a scumbag baptize your child, we know that. <laughs> but God's grace is not contingent upon the piety or the morality of the priest. Maybe Jesus is saying that to us as well. In fact, Maybe Jesus is asking to us to expand our entire mindset about how grace functions. God doesn't just do it through us. God doesn't just do it in spite of us. The truth is, God just does it. It sort of helps me think about there are many people I've known in my life that did not have correct Christian doctrine. I'm often one of those people, um, but in this story, a number of people who I knew were good human beings, who weren't Episcopalians, shame on them a little bit, you know, but, but, but they were really good human beings and there was the, the wrestling, you know, what happens with them, you know, 
because of, because of where they are and their doubts, you know, how is grace evident for them and how are they able to participate in it, you know? And, and the real zinger for me was not just that I met really conservative and liberal people theologically who frankly were better people than I was, but that I have met people who were totally outside of the belief box. The first time I met real Muslims, there were three of them. I was living in Malta in a youth hostel. And as a conservative evangelical Christian, I was positive they were going to hell because they were Muslims. But I very quickly ascertained that they were better people than I was. And I wonder if this isn't Jesus inviting us into that mystery. See, the, thing, the truth is, many of us have known atheists, even militant atheists, that frankly do wonderful things. And are they doing it for God? Maybe whether they know it or not. <laughs> I don't mean to subject them to that claim, but the truth is, when we give somebody else grace, isn't that participating in God? When we give somebody else life, how can that be anything other than participating in God? regardless of what we think we're doing. <laughs> Isn't that the mystery of the sacrament? When we help somebody out, it could be entirely selfish because we want to feel better, but at the end of the day, didn't we also help somebody else out? Isn't grace bigger than our limits or our intentions? I wonder if that isn't what Jesus isn't inviting us to reconsider. The reason, of course, all of that matters is that I don't think that many of you have found God asking you to sacrifice your eldest born child in a fire. But I am positive that we are bearers of a tradition that has had no problem sacrificing other people. And maybe that's too big of a word, sacrifice, because if you're Jewish, you don't call this the sacrifice of Isaac. You call it the binding of Isaac, because in the end, all he did was get wrapped up. In case you're interested, Jewish people think Isaac was 37 when this happened. My Jewish brother told me when I turned 37, be ready for a rough year. <laughs> So maybe the church hasn't sacrificed people. Maybe we've just bound them up. But I ask you to consider whether or not God is calling us to do that or whether God is calling us to do the opposite. There's an Episcopal preacher and writer named Barbara Brown Taylor who says salvation is not just about what happens when we die. Salvation happens anytime someone with a key unlocks a lock they could just as well have locked. Salvation happens anytime someone with a key unlocks a lock they otherwise could have locked. The gift of God is eternal life, but surely the wages of life are unlocking locks. Unlocking locks. Instead of locking people down and binding them in God's name. 
I'm going to mention something because in some ways I think we, we think we've gotten over this in the church. I'm not positive we have, even though we've made a lot of progress. But my first Episcopal um, priest, my first contact with the Episcopal church was in Atlanta about 12 years ago. And I would go and worship at this church in the morning that had a female priest. This is like 2004, 2005. This is not really all that long ago. Not in that place, but when she'd become ordained to the the ministry, of course, people were confident that in obedience to church tradition, they should not show her proper respect or dignity as a priest, so they called her a priestess, a priestess, right? And the way they protested women serving at God's table was to come to the rail indignant and defiant and refuse communion from her. Because after all, she was a woman and not a man. I wonder, I know some of my own, but I wonder which rails we go to and refuse communion from one of God's children. I'm not just talking about the sacrament, of course. I mean approaching and instead of receiving grace from someone else, we stand indignant and defiant. I wonder about this story about Abraham and Isaac. I wonder about this sacrament of service about unlocking doors if in fact God is not asking us to revisit the rails of our indignation and to kneel to extend our arms and to receive grace from God's children that have been bound up with or without our blessing so that God can loose the bonds of the oppressed.